Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Michael, how are you, sir? What the hell? How cool is this? This is cool. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. Thanks for participating in uh, this little experiment. I am loving it. Well, you got, I take some responsibility. I recommended you to Michelle, not that you didn't want to do podcast like anyway. But, you uh, did. You did. <laughs> In fact, your big reason why I'm sort of taking a swing and playing with this and seeing if it's something that's worth continuing to do. Well, I have zero doubt that it's going to show up. It's going to be whether or not you have the time and how you're going to squeeze it in. And is it really going to, you know, getting a time frame where somebody's expecting it and then they don't get it for a while. But I don't know. You'll figure all that out. But there's no way that it won't serve you. Well, I appreciate that. And I think as I've shared with you, the idea here on what didn't kill you is to explore sort of personal stories of resiliency, but also explore how it's a dynamic and a trend in folks that go out and achieve things. And, you know, you're certainly somebody who's achieved a lot yourself, but you also make it your business of helping others achieve a lot. You know, you've been COO of Tony Robbins organization. You've been a head coach there. Maybe you could just share a little bit of your background first and how you got to this type of career. Very cool. I will. First of all, I would not see how I was executive vice president. Executive vice president. Okay. It was the COO who recruited me and brought me in. God, I got that wrong. Sorry. Yeah, I was executive vice president. And uh, and that was up until I started coaching. So I was on Tony's executive team for seven years from 97 to 2005. And and I was really a coach at heart all the time. I've been coaching for 40 years. So, you know, I, but I also had a diverse business background. So they brought me in for that, but it was a perfect marriage because I hadn't even started coaching yet, but Tony was doing what was called coaching at the time. So, and I knew it wouldn't be a matter of time when we started coaching. And so, but in 2005, I transitioned into coaching full-time for Tony, even though I also had, still had my private clientele. So, but yeah, the way I came to work for Tony is I've been, you know, self-help was something that, you know, back in the day when I first was, you know, when I was in my twenties and, you know, got into personal challenges and struggles and, you know, was just totally, you know, discombobulated and had no clue, like most of us at that age, you know, my best friend decided that he was going to run away with my wife. <laughs> wow. So I was not happy about that. And I went into a terrible state. I couldn't stayed in bed for 30 days. It was very public because they both worked at the same place I did. And I was just a mess. Yeah. How old were you at the time? I was 28 at that time. Okay. And I knew nothing about self-help. I was so nothing. I mean, I was, I knew what I was doing in life and being married to her. And that was my life. And what were you doing at the time? I was in manufacturing, pretty much acting as a chief engineer, even though I didn't have a degree in the defense contracting business. I loved it. It was very masculine. We were making weapon systems, high-grade torpedoes. It was during the Cold War, and I enjoyed it. But anyway, that all went down. And when it did, I was in a terrible state. And one of our head engineers, when I came back, he had just done this course called the S-Training, which was the original self-help back in the 70s. He knew what state I was in. He goes, you got to go. You're going to love this thing. And I didn't even know what he was talking about. 
but I was you know, too proud of myself to accept his help or even consider what it was. But it was so intriguing when he told me about it that I told him I wasn't going to go. But that night I went to the guest seminar anyway, <laughs> without telling him, and I was intrigued. I mean, the, the, the man and the woman talking about it without a call, I put myself in it. It was two weekends in Pittsburgh, you know, about two weeks later. And so I go to the first, and by the way, this is an answer to your question, just a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I love it. All right. So I go to the first weekend, and a man comes up on stage, the trainer, the then Tony Robbins guy, and I fall in love with the guy. He's an ex-doctor who had given up medicine because he was so turned on by what they had created with this transformational program they were doing. And he started talking. It was a weekend, and I went, oh, my God. Now, I didn't have a clue what he was saying. I knew it was the truth. I knew he was saying some miraculous stuff that I needed to know about my life and my psychology, but I had no clue. But I was excited and intrigued. I couldn't wait till the second weekend to come back and, you know, and see Dr. Jeff again. So I go home and I'm telling everybody about what it was. And I must have been making a name with, ooh, what the hell are you talking? Because I made no sense, I'm sure. But I was excited. So I go back the second weekend and this lady comes up on stage. And they had a lot of people that were like, you know, trainers and things like that who would, you know, get you ready for the course. And I figured this lady was going to introduce Dr. Jeff. And instead she goes, hi, my name is Laurel Sheep, and I'm your trainer this weekend. So she was going to be the trainer. And I remember that moment, my heart went like, excuse me, where's Dr. Jeff? And you're a woman. You're a woman. Where's Dr. Jeff? So, of course, I was making her completely wrong. How could they put a woman in charge? It was 1980. And by the way, I managed a bunch of women back at the office. They were just women. So anyway, so she starts teaching. And of course, everything that came out of her mouth, I was making wrong. Like Dr. Jeff wouldn't have said that. <laughs> I don't even understand what you're saying. That Dr. Jeff wouldn't have said it. He wouldn't have said it that way. He wouldn't have interacted with that person that way. So finally, about a few hours in, I could see other people were being that way, just like me, the men. And one guy stands up and starts arguing with them. And they're about 10 rows away from the stage. He had a microphone the mic runner had given him. And very similar to today's seminar. So they get into a big argument. And at some point, he was comp- so angry with her. I was sitting next to him on the aisle. And he, was, he threw the microphone at her toward the stage. Wow. I don't think he wanted to hit her. He was just so angry. He just did. So she calmly picks up the microphone and walks it down the aisle, the 10 rows, and hands it up to him across me. And I'm sitting there going, this is going to be good theater. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was hoping he would tell her exactly what she needed to be told. And over the course of the next 20, 30 minutes, she proceeded to tear him up into little bitty pieces in a very loving and eloquent way and put him back together. And everything that was coming out of her mouth was just absolute diamonds and pearls. And I mean, it was just amazing. And, and I started crying and I realized I was an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and that women were amazing, including all the women in my life who I had probably not been treating that way. Yeah. Michael, how colored was that experience because of what you had just been through with your wife and your best friend? Actually, probably not colored at all. Okay. That's what got me there. Yeah. But there was never any, I always thought I treated women just well. I didn't know that I was dishonoring respect to them just by talking down to them or not considering them to be you know, full citizens or whatever it would be. I really didn't know that. We were all walking around blind at that time. And there's plenty of people still, men especially still walking around blind today. Sure. So no, but it's obviously transformed to some degree. So in that moment, it just changed my life. And I got so inspired. Obviously, my relationship with women shifted. But I started training, teaching for them. My coaching career started to take off. But I also met somebody in the seminar 
who was turned on to by that as much as me, and he was in some of my courses. And he was off like 10 years later. I don't know how many years later, maybe. No, about 10 years later. And his name was Sam, Sam Georges. And he comes back to me one day and he goes, Nitty, I know how much you love this self-help and you love the, the landmark and you love everything you're doing. But there's a guy in California. He's the greatest, man. He's walking on fire. I mean, I've been out there. I'm doing it twice. He's actually going to make me a trainer. And I'm going, well, that's good for you, Sam. But I, you know, I'm teaching the spiritual stuff and the whole stuff. I don't think I need to walk on fire. I mean, what is that? <laughs> What is that little thing going on there? But And so for years, he's tried. I never went. My wife actually ended up going to see Tony Robbins in Ohio, even before I ever really went to a seminar. But now it's 1997, and the phone rings, and I hadn't talked to Sam in probably six, seven years. Meanwhile, Tony had hired him to be his COO. So he'd been running Tony Robbins' company for five or six years. And I get a call from Sam. There's an answering machine. Me and Julie were out. And I said, Nitty. Sam Georges, give me a call. That's all he said. And I hadn't talked to him for seven years. We had never talked about Tony Robbins at all. And I looked at Julie and I said, honey, we're moving to San Diego. Wow. <laughs> I knew in that moment that he wanted to hire me. And he brought me out there and put me in charge of uh, operations. And I was all excited because I was going to go out there and coach people for Tony Robbins. And I found out I did that on the side, but he actually wanted me to run operations. And I ended up running you know, the mastery, the sales, I invented the product sales team, I traveled the world with Tony for years, and went to all the seminars all over the world, and it was a beautiful experience. And then at one point in 2005, I transitioned to coaching full time. So that's how I became who I became and how I am what I am today. And then there's a lot of stuff that happened after that. So Very cool. And you mentioned your wife, Julie, how did your life evolve and your relationship with women evolve from the painful experience with your ex-wife and your best friend to finding Julie, who I know is the okay. love of your life. But needless to say, I would have never found Julie or anyone worthy of, you know, <laughs> what you, what I need to bring to the party and all of us need to bring to the party as men, if it hadn't been for that experience. And then of course, transitioning beyond that and then teaching it and teaching man, woman energy stuff and all the time and meeting all the man, woman experts that are out there and becoming one of them. And I met her and uh, so many other women and, and worked mostly with women, actually, from that point forward. I mean, I just love being surrounded by women, female energy, but, I mean, strong, powerful feminine energy, and it's obviously shifted my life. So I have a mix of men and women clients. I enjoy them both. The men clients, my male clients, I typically, to any degree that they're not yet in that energy of honor and respect, they don't get to not coach with me for very long before we fix that. My women clients, I'm always inheriting them having been, no matter how powerful they are, they're still at the effect of that energy in the culture. And they may not be, you know, carrying a flag for me too, but they've all experienced it. And it's, they may think it hasn't affected them, but it has. And so I go in and I clean all that out. And it does help that they're hearing that from a man who is transformed. So they get, they get kind of enthused that, you know, that men are able to bring that to the party in a true and legitimate way. So, you know, I wouldn't have been able to hook up with somebody as great as Julie if I didn't bring that honor and respect to the party. But the important thing to know there is, though, that it's all done without the slightest bit of sacrifice of the true masculine. So it's not like there's plenty of softer men out there, which is a beautiful thing, who are less masculine in their way they show up, who absolutely honor and respect the feminine from that lesser, strong, masculine place. And they're still very powerful men. They do what they do. They run businesses. You know, it makes no difference about sexual orientation. But there's oftentimes 
the men who are maybe that way more naturally aren't in their full masculine. It's almost like there's an either or going on. And so what I do is I make sure that we're able to get men to step up into their true strong masculine and still bring forth from that energy that honor and respect. So that's how it's kind of all affected me. And I think a lot of people go through something like what you went through. They want to shy away from pain. A lot of times the first inclination is not how do I solve this, but how do I numb myself? How do I make it go away? What was it about either you or what you were going through where you made a conscious choice to say, it sounds like something needs to shift or I need to take some action on my part to do something other than just numb myself? Well, that's a good question. And it definitely was the transformational experience of being in Landmark Yes Training at the time that popped my eyes wide open. And I wasn't really coming from any kind of a financial failure or a setback, you know, that really caused me to really feel like this was a turning point in my life, probably because it, I got into the seminar so quickly, found another girlfriend so quickly, and was pretty back on top of my game in that regard. So it was really a few years later at the end of the Cold War when we were no longer making weapons. And our company closed out. And so I was now not making any money, ended up going bankrupt. And there was nobody else that would hire me because there was nobody in the industry hiring. <laughs> the whole industry, that's almost like what happened today. And things like that. So I was in a bad place. And I was already going out with Julie. We were just about to get married. And I pretty much just sat her down. And even from my transformed state, probably from my transformed state, I was owning the fact that I didn't get that I would be able to provide for her and I would be somebody she would have to carry on her little salary. And I don't know when it came, but I was in a bad state and completely not in a strong man's state. And I told her, you should just move on and, you know, find somebody who has a real job. So I was in that place where I had—I was just out. I was completely where I had uh, taken the hit, and there you go. Now, fortunately, she stuck with me, and you know, synchro destiny kicked in, and people I knew. Eventually, I got a another position, and then it turned into something else. And then next thing you know, I find Tony, and I never look back. But there was that moment where you know I had to turn it around, and then it was better than ever. And then in two thousand and eight. 2009 in the housing crisis, had a big, giant, beautiful house in San Diego with Tony. It all hit. I had bought up my parents a house in Phoenix. Everything was beautiful. We had houses. We had everything else. And then that hit. And I didn't have the largest mortgage in the world, but given everything that was happening and the company took a hit, I had to give that back to the bank. But I did it from a strategic place. And I was still able to come back from that really strong. So I have a history of being able to you know, come back and build on whatever took me down and know how to not let that take me under and actually use it to shift my energy into coming back even stronger and taking advantage of what's going on. How do you tap into that? Because you've got tremendous energy every time we interact with each other that that comes through. And, you know, it sounds like Every time you've had sort of these painful experiences, whether it's, it's economically painful or emotional or both, you're able to tap into something. Is that through your training? Is that something intrinsic? How do you develop that? And how do you develop that for your clients? Well, the clients, I take them through processes that shortcut the process, but all because I was able to look back into my past and saw what I went through. It wasn't just the training I went through. It wasn't this, it wasn't that. It wasn't a shift in a mindset or a new way to perspective to look at something. And so I learned early on what it was. But then even after knowing what it was, and I'll explain what it is, I still took another hit 
probably in about 2004 or so. So I was very fortunate to work directly with Tony, and I trust people in this realm probably know who Tony is. But And I, being on the executive team, I worked with him one-on-one, and I was in charge of a lot of things, traveled the world with him, spent time with him on yachts in the Mediterranean. It was just a privilege. It, it caused me to feel pretty special, to be honest, and I used some of that energy to build up my strong masculine intention to know that I was not ego. It was not ego. It was just knowing that I was bringing something incredible and important to the party, working in an important field with an important guy. You know, we could all feel pretty good about that. But then at one point, Tony got so big that he was no longer running the company or even involved with the company much. And he brought in an executive from a major league baseball team, somebody, you know, a top executive to take over so he could go and do what he had to do all over the and run other companies and that stuff. And when he brought that guy in, I, I said, okay, fine. But then I found out that he really didn't know about our business. He didn't know anything. And I was kind of, I was thinking it was because he really didn't know. And I was there to maybe help him know, but why should I help the guy know that is now making four times what I'm making and he doesn't really listen to me. And it was a weird energy I was going through. You know, I was just probably missing Tony. <laughs> I didn't realize I had taken another little hit psychologically. Right. And so great guy, great guy. So about four or five or six months in my wife, Julie was actually starting to say, you know, it may be whatever's going on there or you're just, you're in a terrible state. I've never seen you in this state. And she was upset with me. She goes, you need to fix it. You just need to fix it. And I said, I thought I was doing pretty good. I I was blind to the fact that I had fallen into this lower state. And then it hit me. It was exactly what I had learned in life. Otherwise, I was realizing that my pure masculine intention, not my masculinity, my masculine intention, that which we bring to the party, that's from which our confidence is sourced. Whether it's a man or a woman, it's masculine energy that causes our confidence to come to the fore. So, you know, when a, a little boy is very young, you know, he just knows he can go ride that two-wheeler even without anybody teaching him. Or he can climb that tree just because he can. Or whatever. As, as a man, you know this, and women have probably observed it in men. And sometimes that bothers women, like, oh, my God, they don't even want to li- don't want to follow directions. They'll do it on their own. Whatever. That is a masculine energy. And when it's evolved at a high level, you're walking around with this 10. Now, unfortunately for many of us, and even me in the old days, it was attached to a dishonor and a disrespect for the feminine where, you know, we thought we could have our way with them and it was not pretty. But it still separate out that not pretty energy from the strong masculine intentional energy is a powerful thing. And so I was walking around with that up until Tony left the company. And I was putting, I was now working for this other guy who didn't even know what we were doing. Even though that was my opinion, he was a bright guy. He knew exactly what he was doing. Obviously, he needed to learn, but he was a great guy. And one day I realized that's what had happened. I had taken a hit. And I was walking around pre-Tony leaving at a 10 out of a 10. As far as showing up at my job, doing what I do, confidence, bringing this energy you're seeing right now. And I had actually slipped down to maybe a four. By no doings other than the fact that I took that hit psychologically and subconsciously, and I was now making him wrong and all this stuff. And when I saw it, knowing what I know and being a coach myself, it was almost like, how could you not see you had done this? I thought I was legitimately just upset with the situation and was just not happy with it. I didn't realize that it caused me to lose my masculine intention. And I was walking around at a four instead of a 10. And so I walked into the guy immediately. I walked into his office. He was busy. I said, can I come in? He goes, well, a couple you come in. And I go, let me come in now. You know? <laughs> so I come in and I go, I got to apologize. He goes, okay, for what? I go, well, 
you may not have noticed, but you know, I haven't exactly been probably living up to the, the top building you probably heard about. And he goes, tell me about it. <laughs> and then I let him talk. He goes, when I first came on board, they said, you got this problem, this problem, this problem. You're going to have to fix this. You're going to do all these things. But he goes, at least you'll have Nitty. You just can count on him. He'll be there for you. You can, you know, you can count on him. And he goes, well, I don't know where that guy went. I go, well, I know where he went, but he's back now. <laughs> and I immediately turned it back on. And we had a great talk, and I apologized for being a four, <laughs> which I didn't even know I was being. And I just turned it back on like that, because when you know that you have it within you to do that, there's no going and doing some seminars, going figuring it out, reading a couple of books. You do that. And so once you've had the, that secondary experience of knowing that's true, there are times in my life, you know, in 2008, when I got to get the house back to the bank. I wasn't happy about that. But it didn't rob me of my masculine intention. In fact, my 10 is how I got through it and made the decision to come up here to Las Vegas. And as much as I love San Diego, we came up here and made a financial you know, windfall by buying low up here, doing some other properties, all kind of stuff we did. But I did that from the 10, not from the, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I hope we can survive. So anyway, that's what it is, that strong confidence. So I invite all the men watching and women who are with men who have somehow let down on their confidence to know that it's just nothing more than that. They have taken a hit to that, that masculine self-confidence, and you can bring it back in a heartbeat. But you got to obviously understand that ability to do so. If it's nothing more than doing it, I, God bless you, do it. But that's really all it is. And now I walk around going, why would I ever be anything less than that? So I wake up in the morning. And that's what I am. I'm that all the time. All the time. Our little dog passed away a little while ago. While she was, I was holding her in her arms. And they put the drug into her and took her out. I was the 10. I was the 10 with a tear in my eye. But I was the 10. That dynamic, I think, brings up something that I'm sure is the reason that a lot of your clients come to you. It's, you know, in the book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl writes about this, but on a much more drastic scale, but the Jews return home and see their non-Jewish neighbors and the non-Jewish neighbors say, you know, so what we've suffered too. And it's this realization that that suffering or hardship has no end. So just because you've encountered it in, you know, sometimes drastic, terrible ways, it doesn't mean it's going to end. And so just because you've navigated hardships in the past doesn't mean you're immune. And that's something that I remember thinking about when my little sister died saying, well, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to me and my family. And so nothing will ever be like this again. And, you know, you feel like a sort of immunity when something that terrible happens to you. But as we were discussing, it's being able to navigate these hardships. It's something that you have to keep reinvesting in yourself and keep applying that energy. How do you, when you have clients that come to you and quite often clients that come to you are very, very successful people, but I would imagine a lot of them are coming to you, not when they're at a 10, when there's something besides a 10. How do you help people who have already achieved or, or endured sort of think about recommitting to that dynamic or, or navigating that dynamic? Well, that's a beautiful question and a beautifully spoken question. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able people through the process right now. But it is a process sure. I've been that causes it to happen. I inherit people there all the time. But typically I'm inheriting people who have already been at their 10 and then the thing happened and they're not at their 10 any longer. Or they've tasted 10 
and maybe they've been operating at a seven or an eight. Or they're, believe it or not, they're just, they're female and they've been operating at the feminine 10 and they've definitely created some success through actually bringing a masculine 10 or an eight or 10 to the party. By the way, you don't have to bring a 10. You can bring eight, nine or whatever it is. You're very rarely totally successful or operate anything at a high level at something like a four or five. It's not. You're just getting by. You're probably a good you know, employee doing what you need to do because you've got a commitment and all that. But you're not going to be a strong leader. You're just not. So yes, I inherit people like that all the time or people that have maybe been stronger than something happened. They took a hit, whatever it would be. We all take hits. So eloquently spoken that, yes, we're never, it's not the end of suffering. You know, we're all suffering right now and there's things going on and I have had other things happen where I have suffered something that was sufferable. And yet I promise you, I suffered it from the 10 because I know that there is no reason not to give up the 10. And even though it was still sad and it was something I had to get through, I saw myself as the person who was going to be the leader out of it. And that fed the 10 even more. That does not mean there's moments where you just go, oh my God, I had massive kidney failure two years ago and I was hours away from dying. And I remember the nurse that was, you know, putting a certain, you know, tube into a certain part of my anatomy that I was hoping would never happen as long as I was alive. And I was just refused to allow anything to cause me to not be in my strength and my power. And I remember she was having trouble and I coached her from my tent and empowered her and made her feel special and thanked her. So much so a couple of days later, this doc, they were telling this doctor showed up and he goes, he was afraid that because I was being this 10, even though I'd almost died, they were afraid I wasn't going to take it seriously and take my meds and everything I wanted to do because they'd never run into somebody who wasn't in a down state from what was going on. And I said, well, that would be silly. Why would I do that? And so I promise you it's possible. And so what I do is I take them through a process and I allow, you know, people, but women too, I take them through a similar process because the truth is no matter what it is, we have the ability to bring that to the party. That is something we bring. We bring it. We own it. There is no thing no force outside. Now, I don't know. You're, you get, you just had an accident. You're in a car and it's burning. You know, you're fearful in that moment. Yeah. But I promise you, you can still bring that tent to the party to get out of the damn car. No, and then yeah. you know something might happen, and you and you're suffering. I don't know. So I'm not suggesting that there aren't times where you fall out of it, but once you know that you own the ability to bring it back to the party, you have that ability, and it may not come back like you know you're, you know you've just won the Super Bowl, but it's going to be an intention that then grows to the degree. Then you're also not a lone ranger. You're forming partnerships with other people. You're, you're doing whatever you need to do, obviously, in a way of, you know, whereas you're just bringing it in an intelligent way as well. You don't go, like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the lone ranger. No, a lone ranger doesn't work either. You know, I would have died in that hospital if that lady wasn't my partner and making me, and the doctors didn't do what they were supposed to do and they didn't perform the miracles they performed. And you wouldn't have known you were at a four if Julie hadn't uh, spoken up, right? Versa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. But again, I think there was a defining moment where there was so much consciousness around. It. So because I'm being the first to admit that for a while, even though I thought I was there, that there wasn't consciousness around it for four months. And I was blaming him. So I'm not immune to the fact of knowing that there could be a place where I might fall into that again. I'm just pretty much of the opinion that I would have to be pretty stupid not to recognize it before four months. Sure. 
But is part of that because you've spent your life testing that? You've spent your life being, yes. you know, having hardships in front of you and having to try and be at a high level, not in spite of them, but because of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of them. Oh, absolutely because of them. I mean, you know, now we're talking about a spiritual you know, energy called synchro destiny. And when you would appreciate in advance that the thing that just happened, you know, is something that, that made you stronger or allows you to be stronger. Like, uh, you know, I, that, that was it. When my, best, when my best friend went away with my wife, that was it. I was going to, how would I ever, I, that's it. I'm ruined forever. And then, you know, five months later, I got the greatest little girlfriend and, oh, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that was more of a, you know, that, that kind of an energy. But no, even going bankrupt, everything that ever happened, giving the house back to the bank, all those things, I actually knew as it was happening. I didn't know how. I didn't know how. And I went through months, six months, whatever, of being not where I wanted to be trying to figure out how to, it wasn't like one the next day I moved to Las Vegas and it was all peaches and cream immediately. But during the process of coming back and being intelligent about how we would do it and figuring out all the what ifs and the maybes and how would we do it, that I was doing from a 10. Knowing the thing that was able to feed the 10 was the knowing that I knew we would get there. I just knew it. Didn't have to know how. But I also knew we weren't going to get there if I was going to be a four or a six or a cell. So that's part of the process. Yeah. You know, the dynamic you're discussing is kind of that, that idea of life is happening for me as opposed to to me. Absolutely. It has yeah. to be that. The life, it serves what it is. Life happens to you. And then it's up to you how quickly you shift from to me to for me. Yeah. It can be a heartbeat. It can be a day. It could be four months. <laughs> it can be never. It's up to us. Now, I say that, and there's so many people listening go, well, yeah, because you had all this training, and you did it, and you did all this stuff, and you're a coach, and you work for Tony Robbins and all of that. It's almost like I hate that that was even part of the case, because I can't get people to see, or I want them to see that, no, 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 really, I was, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy. I'm glad I'm not six foot seven like Tony, and I don't look like Tony, and I'm just a guy. And, you know, seriously, it's, it's probably good that it's that way. There's so many people that... You know, Tony works one-on-one with these top athletes and they're sitting there going, man, he's bigger than me. And he, and he starts, he, I think he means it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I work with those same athletes. You know, I took uh, coach Chuck Liddell through dancing with the stars. I could go down the list of fun stuff I've done. But the point is I get them to see it too. And I think they're even amazed, you know, wow, this little guy could bring this energy. And it's certainly not fake energy. I bring the truth. I bring the truth. And by the way, I bring it respectfully. I also, you know, funnel it through my feminine. So there's always a lightness present, a, a love present. I can't do anything without empathy. I have empathy for you over there, you know. So it's going to be, you know, it's not just, all right, let's make this happen. <laughs> so I think one of the commonalities between all these things we've discussed is there's the need for awareness to be doing something about the state that you're in. Yes, well-spoken. Yes, absolutely. And that has to come first, actually. Yeah. In fact, if you start going into something or as a resolution or if I attack a client too soon or if we try to do something, I get some resistance or there's something there, I'll know that I skipped awareness. And so how, for yourself or for a person you're coaching or for the average person, how do you find practices that can help you with that sort of awareness that, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm not in a good spot 
or I'm not responding to this situation well. I mean, that can be hard to do when you've got serious hardships in front of you. What's the mechanism or how can you train the mechanism for thinking through getting to that place of awareness? Because I find in myself, we talk about this, I love this subject matter, but it's easy sometimes to fall into that reactive state or to not be aware that you're, you're not in a good place and you're being self-pitying or you're indulging in negative internal narratives. And it takes something, at least I've found, to snap you out of that. How do you practice that? Surrendering to awareness earlier. And usually that's going to be catching yourself being ineffective, whether it's your own turning yourself back on or the client's not getting it. There is no reason to start in that moment ever figure anything out. It's just, okay, I'm missing something here and what I'm missing is awareness. I'm missing something I haven't said to them. I'm missing something where I haven't surrendered myself. So you first have to own that you're human. So the first thing you do is you know that just because you own this ability or you're a high-level coach or you play with high-level people and you're able to get people to a place, you know, in a relatively short amount of time, including yourself, that you don't got this thing beat. You're never going to beat humanity. You're never going to get beat it. You're going to shortcut the amount of time it takes you to get from unaware to aware to strength and to step beyond it, but you're never going to beat it. So for me, it's building the muscle of knowing that if I'm ever stuck, I'm stuck in a lack of awareness. And then I just take a breath. I come back and if it's with the client, I say, okay, what's missing here? And it's usually going to be some kind of level of rapport and empathy. I'm coming on too strong. I didn't honor them first by uh, you know, picking up on something going on with them or whatever it would be. With myself, I actually have to honor myself because there's times where I'm just, I'm disturbed about something. I'm just actually to my own dismay, but yet not to the degree that I don't continually own my humanity. I just surrender. I just surrender. I go, I laugh at myself and I go, yeah, I think for about three minutes there, you thought once again, you had beat human being. Ha ha, you did not. (laughs) (laughs) And I just allow myself to be human. And I forgive myself for that little, you know, moment. Not like I did anything wrong, but I just, I just, it's almost like I even embrace it because, ah, just in case you ever get too full of yourself, (laughs) you know, as uh, Shakespeare said, you know, uh, like flies are to wanton boys. (laughs) They crush them for sport. And that's what happened. (laughs) God (laughs) said, okay, Nitty, crush you. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. I just accept it, take my medicine and step back up into power. Yeah. And that, that seems to dovetail with the sort of main theme of your book, the trophy effect, where you're developing a practice where you're regularly rewarding yourself for being human or for doing the positive little things that help you get into get and maintain that place of awareness, right? Beautifully spoken. Yes, because what you're doing then is you're actually building the muscle because it is still a muscle. But I don't like to, but there's a part of me that doesn't want to suggest that it's building a muscle that they could take three months or eight months or whatever. But it does, it strengthens the muscle. It strengthens the muscle because the truth is you really can just snap your fingers and step into a powerful state. Now, from that powerful state, there's still stuff that has to be dealt with that could knock you back down into a lesser state again. That does not mean that you really didn't achieve the powerful state. It means something else knocked you down and you're back down. You know, like a fighter, he doesn't say, okay, I'm up after the third round, I'm going to knock you out. No, he may get knocked down five times before he ultimately wins the race. He wins the fight. But, but, you know, it's not, but what he doesn't do is go, oh, I got knocked down for the third time. I should just give up. Yeah. 
the trophy metaphor is, is that you keep acknowledging yourself with, for the little wins. And what you're doing is you're actually replacing what your survival mind does on its own, which is to give you negative trophies for all the mistakes you've made and the fact that you failed in the first place and that you're really not as good as you think you are and who you think you are anyway. And we've got this giant collection of proof from the past that we are not good enough. And so what we're doing in any kind of realm of, you know, stepping into our power is we're disappearing all that proof from the past that we're not good enough with proof that we are, that we are good enough. And that's an overt intention. You know, reaction has us fall prey to the fact that we've got this collection of proof that we're not good enough. And all human beings have that. We have that. It's a normal way of being. It's the normal being human. Because the mind has, we have a fear that we're not good enough. And because the mind has a fear that we're not good enough, the mind is always looking for proof that we're not good enough. And we're bound to make mistakes every hour or two, if not sooner. And then the mind will say, aha, you're not good enough. And it will remember that you're not good enough. Not because it's, it's putting your nose in it. It's because you also survived that moment that you're not good enough. And the mind wants to remember how you survived that little moment of not being good enough because it will then have you doing that in the future, which sounds like a positive thing, but it keeps you small. It keeps you stuck in survival rather than your power. Do you think that being in that state of power and accomplishing things do you think it's made greater because of adversity? So, I mean, you work, as you said, with a lot of high performers. Is victory sweeter when it comes at a higher cost? I believe so. And if it's whether or not it's sweeter, it's definitely more empowering, more of a lesson. Like you said, it's, yet it is sweeter, but I don't think anybody that then has that happen considers that it's sweeter. They're happy that they also got the better learning from it. Sure. I can survive that. You know, like, yes, it's like I built that muscle. Anybody could you know, this happened or that happened or whatever. But, you know, no, when it's something major, I agree with you. Yes, it's, you know, you, you survive that. It, it does build that muscle. Like, well, if I survived that. I've got a quote for you. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. To those human beings who are of any concern to me, I wish suffering, desolation, sickness, ill treatment, indignities. I wish that they should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of the vanquished, I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can prove today whether one is worth anything or not that one endures. Ah, there you go. That's, that's Nietzsche. What do you think about that? Well, not even a question. Obviously. Obviously, obviously, obviously. You, I was watching a special not too long ago on 60 Minutes, and they were interviewing a bunch of, you know, at least at the time, you know, Holocaust survivors. And, you know, and it was just amazing. And all of them. We're speaking basically that, basically. It's reminiscent of something Tony Robbins says, but it's, you know, it feels like quite often there's a human drive or a societal drive to think that, you know, life should be free of problems. But I think the the way that he put it is, you know, if you've got no problems, it means you're dead. Life's about upgrading your problems or improving your problems. And And it's also not about going out looking for them. Now, by the way, the mind subconsciously will do that because if you survived a problem and it caused you to make you stronger, but that was at the level of your ego, the mind will then continue to look for those problems and you'll find, why does this keep happening to me? Why does the, <laughs> you know, why do these women keep living me? Why does that man, whatever. So now that's, now you're not in an intentional state and yeah, you may grow from it, but you're probably not because it's going into the mind's memory bank as something that just allows it, your ego to survive, but not your strength, not your true strength. So 
but no, when it is something you have to survive, again, it's not like you're out there looking for those things, but you don't need to. Because living a life that we live on this planet with all the things that can go wrong, unless you're sitting really truly maybe in a monastery and you're, you've chosen that spiritual path, or you're pretty much protected from, you know, you're not going to go bankrupt, you're not going to have a failure, you're not going to have a, you know, somebody leave you, you're not going to have all those things. Now, I'm not suggesting they are without suffering or having something happen to them that they don't have to overcome, not at all suggesting that. But obviously that path would not be the path you just read to me. And I think there's a great thing to be said about, you know, the spiritual nature and the things they've overcome would be grander things. I mean, you come over, you overcome your ego, you come overcome your mind. And that's pretty much what that was about. True also, by the way. But yes, when you're out there actually in the world, overcoming stuff and failures and bankruptcies and, and things that didn't go your way or how all of us are going to come through COVID, how all of us are going to come through this is going to make us all strong. The ego thing is always an interesting one because it's easy to perceive indignities or perceive troubles that are so tied to, to ego. And I think going back to you know our discussion about awareness, that at least it has been for me, and I think I've seen a lot of other people, that distinguishing between, is it the ego or is this me, right? How many problems can be solved by just divorcing it from the ego and saying, how many people would be better served by not having a quick response or, you know, not saying that thing they shouldn't have to their coworker, their boss, their colleague, their spouse. But the ego just gets us in trouble so often in ways that, you know, we don't have to be. Going back to awareness, how do you kind of maintain that sense of, is this an ego talking? Is this an unproductive narrative talking? Or is this actually, is this me? Well, in time, you develop the ability to intuit that immediately. You just do. Everybody has that ability. But the first thing is just assume it's ego because in the beginning, it's always going to be ego because there's no place, as long as your, your heart is beating, including myself, who is a transformed being, somebody who's been teaching this forever and owns the ability to step beyond my ego very quickly, I don't own the ability to disappear my ego. It's impossible. It will be there as long as I'm alive. And so I often watch my own ego playing out in my mind and making people wrong and thinking that person's stupid and why did they do it that way and what an idiot. And I'm never going to turn off that little voice. But what happens is between the time of my ego whispering in my ear that I should you know, just cut that person out of my life or I should not do that or whatever it be, I then cause myself to understand and appreciate it's my ego without making it wrong because I'm human. So I embrace it. And that's the first step that most people skip because they also think that it's them thinking. So, oh my God, what if somebody knew that I just had that thought or that, you know, but what you're saying is even worse than that. They haven't just had the thought. They put it on loudspeaker and they called the person the asshole and they told them that they were a piece of shit. And they said, I would never work with you again as long as I'm alive. And that's all come out of their mouth. So the truth is that is all ego. And how do we know? Because the ego is a reactionary energy and you would never say something terrible to anybody on purpose. I'm not saying you wouldn't put in the correction. You wouldn't bring up the fact that something has to be resolved here because you just did something you shouldn't have done. Of course we handle that. But any energy that would put somebody down or diminish them, that's the ego doing that. Okay, so, but we still have the ability to catch it. We can see, I'm about to tell this person something that's going to end this relationship. And as it's about to flow over your tongue, <laughs> you don't. We all have that ability. Now, that's a, that is an energy, a power, an intention you have to build, okay? But it's easier than you think. But only once you first own 
that is ego. Because there are people that still think that's them. Hey, I don't step over any crap, man. If somebody gives me a bad time, they're going to hear about it, <laughs> said the New Yorker. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's ego. I hate to tell you. No, no, I don't put up with shit. Yeah, I know. Your ego doesn't put up with shit. You just go a little over. So if, there, if people aren't going to feel them to be conscious about it, they'll just be ego for the rest of their life, and they'll be happy about it, and they'll win some and lose some and uh, die alone in a corner somewhere. <laughs> but it, it goes back to that you always have a choice about how to respond, and just like you have a choice on how to respond to a given set of circumstances, you have a choice on how to respond to you know the narrative that's telling you something negative about yourself in your head or what your ego is encouraging you to do. And so it's... I guess, you know, what I'm taking away from this is finding that practice to be able to have that awareness and whether it's an internal practice or it sounds like, you know, an external support structure is huge for that too. Having people that love you, care about you, are enlightened enough to be able to say, you're not in a good place right now, or that's your ego talking or other things. I mean, the more that we can surround ourselves with folks like that, the easier it is to exercise that muscle, I think. It is. It is. I didn't do this in a void. I worked. Yeah. With, I was in seminars. I was with people. I would do masterminds. I did, when I first evolved into this way of thinking, it was a couple of year process. And, you know, yeah, and it was with other people. It wasn't alone on a mountaintop, you know, waiting for lightning to strike. So, and I did not just make that wrong. Okay. So, but yeah, but what you're talking about now is something that is called, that is consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing and appreciating and owning that your ego is what it is and that you are not that and that you can observe that formulating in your, you know, versus the New Yorker I was making fun of who thinks that is who he is, that strong will, and he ain't taking no crap from nobody. (laughs) Thinking that is who you are versus knowing that's your ego. By the way, you can still voice it strongly. And one of the reasons why very strong willed people don't think it's their ego and they know it's them, they think it's them, is because there is a part of it that is them. They are strong-willed. They are not shrinking violence. They are going to put their truth out there into the universe in a strong way and get their result. They're not going to go, could you please do it this way? No, they run, you know, construction teams. They do what they do. But they have to understand that it can still be delivered from a loving place, from a beautiful place, from a beautiful state, even with the masculine intention behind it. So this is also why sometimes you can't separate out and you don't understand the distinction between the ego speaking and whether or not it's just a strong will speaking. But let's put it this way. If it's anything other than from a place where it's going to cause somebody to just understand what you're saying and get it and go, whoa, I think he needs it, or feel disrespected, diminished, and put down and made to feel like crap, that would be ego talk. And consciousness is the, in the appreciation of that, the awareness of that, and being able to catch yourself about to express something from ego, put an end to that, and still say what may need to be said. You just don't like, well, well, the employee screwed up. I'm, I'm not going to yell at him. You know, well, yeah, you're not going to yell at him. You still have to put in the correction. And then to be able to catch that and have it come from your heart and your intention versus your ego. And consciousness is that thing that allows you to catch it and override it and have it be spoken from your heart and your intention versus your ego. That all makes sense? Makes sense. The trick is always putting it into practice. But I think, you know, we as a world right now need that more than ever. I think there's a lot of people, whether they're entrepreneurs and business owners and executives or hospitality workers, you know, a lot of folks are faced with a lot of adversity right now. 
and being able to make sense of it, get a little bit of space, a little bit of perspective, I think makes all the difference. If the uh, if 28-year-old you is out there right now, what's your advice to him given everything that's going on in the world? Go to the equivalent of the S training. <laughs> Go do some kind of seminar work. Get yourself with people who teach this stuff. Don't you know, shortcut the process. You know, get yourself into some coaching. Get yourself into the stuff that is proven to have worked. There are so many mindset leaders out there. So many. They're all good. They all know different levels of what they know. They've all been through the battles, what are the wars. There's very few people out there that are just putting up a shingle and pretending that's what they are. Happy to know most of many of them and, you know, beautiful people with a great intention. And you will know soon enough if they're just talking a good game, but there's so few of those that make it anywhere. So yes, put yourself into one of those groups. Join a mastermind with this kind of people. You know, now there's masterminds that'll tell you how to do real estate better, how to do this better and that better. Those are all beautiful. And usually they are filled with people who have been successful and you don't get real successful in life unless you become a master of this, whether you did a course or not. So even those people are going to be able to be peers who are able to be there for you so you don't go off on people and you're being more, you know, in your intention versus your ego. So don't be the Lone Ranger is basically the answer to your question. Yeah. And at the very least, you know, pursuing those types of classes or seminars, you're surrounded by like-minded people who want to pursue this similar subject matter. Absolutely. And then just make sure that you're leading with your heart and your compassion. And then even if you're bringing a strong masculine energy to the party or whatever, whether you're a woman or a man bringing that energy to the party, you always have to lead with that. So, you know, that's what you do. That's what works. So, Any programs in particular that you recommend right now for folks? Look, the masters are all great. Anything you can, uh, you know, Think and Grow Rich is the oldest book in the entire world. But, you know, if you start with that, you know, anything, you know, that has to do with uh, programs you can get from Tony Robbins, you know, there's, um, if it's business stuff, Boy, there's, you know, if you listen to Tony, what Tony does is he turns you on to other stuff. He's just not saying, do my stuff, do my stuff, do my stuff. He's worked with the top people on Wall Street. He's worked with the top people in finance, the top people everywhere. So, you know, you're going to get a lot of recommendations from that. But I don't know. If you're talking relationship stuff, Alan Armstrong, David Data, he's been around a long time. So many others. If you're talking just transformational stuff, my... I apologize for not having anything right here right now. No worries. No worries. Sorry to put you on the spot. But read the trophy effect. I'm serious. If you guys are out there and you want to get a sense of what's underneath what it is that caused me to be able to bring this to the party, you know, during my epiphany, when I spent time in the ether and had my moment of consciousness, the trophy effect came out of that. I got to see very clearly everything we've been talking about today. And then I put it in book form. And it actually takes you on a little journey. It doesn't just say, do this, do that. If you want to be like this, you got to be that way. But obviously, no, it actually takes you on a journey through your survival mind and kind of like pulls the rug out from under you at a point where you're able to see it. It's got some tremendous exercises in it as well. Really enjoyed those. And so, Michael, I really appreciate the time today. If people want to find out more about you, have questions, you know, want to reach out. Is there a good place to find you? Yeah. Well, first of all, website is, I'm always talking about intention versus reaction. So it's always about searching for and causing yourself to be intentional. So my website is intentionquest.com. But frankly, I put more of my stuff out there on a daily basis and on Facebook. So if you simply, you know, look for Michael Nitty in Las Vegas, 
I put a daily teaching out there that's original every day. I'm available to be contacted through Facebook. So most of the people come to me through Facebook and through referrals. And that's really how to find me. That's great. I really appreciate you doing this with me. Hope it was as enjoyable for you as it was for me. Anything that you would leave people with as we wind this down, particularly given the state of the world today? Have faith. Have faith. We've all been here before. It's been worse. You know, we've been talking to a guy today that talked about a chap from what we've been through World War II and, you know, the, th- the things that happened back in World War II. You know, I'm older and I know we've been, I've been through a lot of this stuff. No, we've never had a virus attached to it like this. But again, we have before there was a cure, back with the Spanish, back even with uh, some of these other ones that have had been happened recently. So have faith. You know, we will get through this. It's going to be hard for some of us more than others, you know, at times here in the next few months, whatever it might be. But there's, you know, the leaders will get it through us, even as they argue about how to do it. And just do your part. Stay strong. Be with, you know, be their family and be smart and uh, stay in an intentional state. Don't let the reaction suck you down into a place where you're totally disempowered and, you know, just sitting around going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> even if you feel like it. <laughs> Great advice. Really appreciate the time today, Michael. Thank you. You sure this is one of the first ones you've done here? Because I know it is. And you were destined to do this. I mean, everything you asked me was right on. I mean, you danced with me. I'm just going to be honest with you. That was phenomenal. It was a beautiful experience for me. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it, Michael. I I really enjoyed it. And if I keep enjoying it this much, I'm liable to keep doing it. (laughs) (laughs) My intention for you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thank you, you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.